Frontier War Stories, episode 27. Uh, just a quick disclaimer for anybody, especially uh, mob that are tuning in. We do mention massacres and in some cases uh, the names uh, of Aboriginal people who, uh, who are deceased. Uh, and uh, some of these yarns do get uh, pretty heavy in regards to conflict on the frontier as well. But welcome to Frontier War Stories. Uh, before I go any further, I'd like to pay my respects to the country on which this podcast uh, is being recorded and where my guests uh, are from and also where the listeners are tuning in uh, are from as well. And also to all the Aboriginal people who fought uh, in the Frontier Wars, which lasted, uh, sorry, which began as early as 1788 and lasted till the 1930s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued uh, to resist, to thrive and survive. Uh, and I also would like to pay my respects to mob across this beautiful continent today. Uh, each episode, I speak with uh, different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, uh, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. Uh, my guest on episode 26 is Ryan Stewart, who is a PhD candidate in history at the University of Newcastle, uh, and uh, one of his supervisors uh, is a previous guest on the podcast um, and is doing amazing work uh, in the history field in regards to talking about uh, conflict and massacres uh, here uh, in Australia. He's also a history teacher and is living on Darkenjung uh, country. Uh, thanks for uh, making some time to come on and have a chat, uh, Ryan. Thanks, Bo. Great to be here and great to be on beautiful Darkenung country. And I just want to acknowledge uh, Darkenung people, past, present and future, and the wonderful work that Darkenung Aboriginal Local Land Council does up here on the Central Coast. So it's Darkenung, not Darkenjung? Well, a bit of contention there, Bo, in terms of pronunciation. Um, oh, yep, 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 yep. Darkenung elder uh, Tommy Sales used to say Darkenung, D-A-R-K-I-N-O-O-N-G. Um, so, yeah, but the Darkenung Land Council currently spell it as Darkenjung, and, and um, some mm. folks say it a bit differently. I, I tend to follow uh, elder Tommy Sales' pronunciation for Darkenung. Duck Where my mob is, um, I say Gamilaray, but then there's a whole bunch. I think there's like maybe three to four, almost five different ways of saying it as well. And, you know, all mobs sort of relate to saying it uh, uh, in those ways as well. Um, but, yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to get in, uh, get you on the podcast is we've been chatting for quite some time. Uh, as I just mentioned, uh, you're a PhD candidate um, and your work is looking at uh, frontier conflicts. Just really quickly for people tuning in, could you tell us where Darkenjung country is? Sure, sure can, Bo. And Darkenung country is, is amazing country, beautiful country. Where we've got the magnificent Mount Yengo overlooking us, where Bayami, the creator, stepped out of the sky and, and created living things. The powerful dreaming here on the central coast. And the coastal Darkenung uh, mob, uh, on whose country I, I live and the country that I respect every day is between Hawkesbury River, Sirubin, and Lake Macquarie. So for folks um, who know Sydney quite well, then the Hawkesbury River just north of Sydney. So that's the kind of natural boundary to the south and then to the north, Lake Macquarie. So 
a rich area in between two natural boundaries uh, along the coast there with the Hawkesbury in the south and Lake Macquarie in the north. And another thing too, to, uh, you know, set up the geography of the Central Coast is it is called the Central Coast because it's nestled between uh, Sydney and Newcastle. And, and you know, one important thing for listeners is, is, is that the Central Coast hasn't had a lot of, uh, I guess, historical attention um, in terms of what happened here during the early colonial, colonial period and the frontier period. So it's, it's really uh, something that uh, researchers are just starting to um, essentially unearth as to the truth telling about what really happened here on the frontier. Well, let's get straight into it. Through your research, uh, you know, uh, through your yarning with elders as well, when was invasion around that uh, part of the country? So the Central Coast is really interesting because uh, Darkenung people, coastal Darkenung people, uh, Wanangini, uh, coastal clans, coastal family groups actually had first contact at the same time as the Aura mob. Uh, because Captain Arthur Phillips uh, came up to the Central Coast five weeks after the first fleet took anchor in, in Port Jackson. So first contact was established really early here between uh, Governor Phillips and his men and the coastal Darkenung people. And there's actually a memorial uh, to that event at Pearl Beach today. Unfortunately, the memorial is completely from the white perspective. Uh, and so that's something that we're looking to to, to change and, and add the First Nations perspective from the shore uh, because it's currently uh, there only as a uh, bicentenary monument from uh, 1988, the 200th year of uh, Governor Phillips um, doing a trip up here to, to scout around the land and, and the waterways. And uh, so Darkenung Mob had contact very early and it was indeed with the new uh, British governor of the invaded land, uh, Arthur Phillips. Mm. Um, and so, what? Right away, there was there was conflict that uh, happened as well. No, so uh, not not con- conflict um, from the get go in terms of Governor Phillips coming up here. Uh, so he was basically just up here on reconnaissance. And when Philip and his party uh, met and interacted with Darkenung people, gifts were provided. And a First Nations man actually tried to provide a cave uh, for Governor Philip to shelter in. So um, positive interactions at, at the start. However, a British spade was then stolen. Uh, so a Darkenung man took a, a British spade and spears and muskets were raised, but not fired. So um, the Darkenung men, the Darkenung warriors raised their spears and the British soldiers raised their muskets. But uh, thankfully in that case, uh, the guns weren't discharged and spears were not thrown. So it started off cordially, but as in many, many cases, uh, ended up in mistrust almost immediately also. And, you know, that was potentially a bit of a forewarning of things to come on the Central Coast. Yeah, let's sort of just talk about... um what you know, sort of, uh, when things sort of kicked off earlier on and, and um, yeah, how things sort of played out. So I just want to uh, acknowledge, Bo, and listeners, that as a white fella, I'll be talking about the, uh, the European evidence and the documentary evidence. Um, and we do have quite a lot of, of um, telling documentary evidence and, and um, European records about the nature of contact uh, here in the Central Coast. And essentially, 
after Governor Phillips came up here and, and explored it, it obviously wasn't right for a natural harbour. Um, if listeners know the Brisbane water region and the Hawkesbury does have some deep water, but it's not appropriate for, for a deep water harbour that would suit the British ships at the time. So it wasn't um, invaded and it wasn't um, settled uh, for, for 30 years. And, um, and so the first period of contact is, is quite interesting because it's essentially lawlessness. It's lawlessness between uh, escaped convicts. A lot of escaped convicts are roaming through the area, particularly after Newcastle um, Kingstown was established as a, as a penal colony. So then you've got two penal colonies, one in the north and one in the south of the central coast, north being Newcastle, south being Port Jackson, Sydney. So you've got this, um, this massive area, the central coast, which was really an, an, an opportune place to escape convicts to traverse through. And we do have evidence of escaped convicts interacting with the Darkenung people. Indeed, we actually know of one uh, particular convict, a, a convict named Thomas Desmond, who was actually found living with the coastal Darkenung people in 1804 um, in modern-day Patonga, again, right on the Hawkesbury on Deer Oven. So uh, we've got, you know, interesting accounts of, um, of this lawlessness um, on the Central Coast and convicts um, coming up here. You also have the issue of uh, people um, coming up here illegally to uh, fell timber and even to, um, you know, to create rum and, and illegal distilleries because it was kind of outside of the law. It really was, in the European sense, it really was the frontier. The Central Coast in that early period. We're talking about the uh, the 1790s. So in that period, uh, and also we had the the terrible smallpox um, epidemic. So unfortunately for the coastal dark nung mob, uh, by 1789, the smallpox epidemic, uh, the first epidemic in this continent, um, had ripped through the population, and uh, uh, David Collins, the Lieutenant Governor of New South Wales, noted that in 1789, upon visiting um, Broken Bay, which is on the northern end of the, of the Hawkesbury of Deer Oven, he actually said that smallpox had not confined its effects to Port Jackson, to Sydney, for in many places our path was covered in skeletons. So they actually found uh, whole areas up here uh, littered with First Nations skeletal remains from the smallpox epidemic. So that was another really uh, cataclysmic um, aspect of contact. In terms of actual um, invasion of, uh, organised invasion of the Central Coast, of Darkenung coastal lands, it didn't actually occur until 1823 because it wasn't until 1823 that the first official landholder, um, a gentleman named James Webb, was actually uh, given and, and, and he took up an official land grant um, from the colonial office in Sydney. So again, you've got this 30 year period of lawlessness and, and interactions that aren't well documented, but they were happening. So we do have the ugly spectre too of, of those convicts and those illegal timber gatherers and the rum distillers and all those, those whites that were up here doing things illegally, um, obviously having interactions with the Darkenung, in some case, uh, taking women, uh, issue of rape. So all those um, elements were occurring, did occur. However, we don't have a lot of evidence about that. We do have a, a missionary 
uh, Reverend Threckeld, who um, was up at Lake Macquarie, and, and he refers to these, these things happening in essentially you have to assume that it was, was happening here on the Central Coast also. So a period of lawlessness, and in 1823, we have the first official uh, land grantee, James Webb, coming to the area. And then we have our, you know, essentially the first ongoing uh, interactions in terms of contact with uh, Webb and his family and his um, convict workers and the convict workers that were freed, the emancipists who decided to stay working on the land. And so from then on, you have really ongoing um, contact because the, the invaders uh, had actually um, settled down um, for the foreseeable future. So that was from 1823. You know, when this particular uh, family, as you mentioned, sort of set up, is that when sort of conflict started to arise as well? That's right, yeah. So it's really from 1823 uh, that the the apex of violence between the dark and iron mob and the uh, settler colonists starts to increase. And it's all of those things that you said, Bo, and, and, and across the continent, the same pattern, isn't it? And it's funny, um, for those things that you mentioned, uh, exactly the types of things that James Webb um, did to the dark and young people. And exactly what you said, the dark and young people at first were accommodating and were working for him um, and interacting. And, you know, like um, Mark Dunn talks about, the, the intimacy of the frontier. And that's something that you see on the Central Coast. You see this intimacy between First Nations and the settler colonists. And then, and that's why it's so puzzling to understand the violence that occurs when there is this intimacy um, and then things degenerate. And quite often, as you were saying, due to the uh, brutalization of women and the, uh, you know, the, the increasing encroachment upon land, upon country, upon natural resources. And one thing that I will be talking about um, in this session is the, the impact of the annual burn-off would have on um, tensions between settler colonists and the local Darkenang mob. So that's something um, that comes into the picture also, uh, because as you know, and as the listeners know, um, across the continent, annual burn-offs or biannual burn-offs so important uh, to take care of country and to replenish and to provide your hunting grounds. And of course, when settlers are taking up big parcels of land and time came for the burn-offs, um, it was all, always going to be, um, you know, a, a source of conflict, and that definitely did happen here on the Central Coast. Mm. And one, one, one thing um, I just want to, to to add at this point too is that um, previous to to James Webb coming up here, there, there was a very very uh, famous and you know, well-known uh, First Nations leader who was from the Central Coast, and that was Bungary. So uh, the northern, the southern end of the Central Coast uh, is really Bungary's country, and the Wanangini uh, family group, and the sort of um, southern Darkenang mob, and Bungary obviously um, had a big impact on the um, the colonial office in Sydney and, and Bungary was awarded a, a medal and, and declared the chief of, of the people in Sydney. And this was all a bit incorrect, but uh, Bungary, you know, um, was awarded these titles because he um, essentially, you know, was interacting with 
with the officials and um, and he wanted to engage and, and to learn and to and to um, be a translator and all, all those sorts of things and, and obviously he also went around Australia with with Matthew Flinders so Bungary uh, we can't neglect him an amazing figure there is some contention about how Bungary is remembered remember how he's remembered by some dark and hung was he potentially someone who was um, you know potentially turning against his own people by these interactions with the whites. And then there's also, you know, the celebratory side of, of Bungary um, as this incredible figure who who really um, provided a bridge in terms of communication in so many instances between uh, different mobs and, um, and the settler colonists. Uh, what I want to talk about now is I remember you were, we were chatting about... Um some uh, resistance leaders and, and some resistance that was happening. Mm, and I know mm, you wanted to yeah. talk about some of uh, the burning off and sort of how that may have occurred. Well, well that, that can be tied into this. Yeah. So. All right. So we'll, we'll jump ahead a few years um, to when the apex of frontier violence occurred here on the Central Coast, and that was in 1834 and 1835. And you know, put it into context with Mark Dunn's research, um, Angus Murray's research about hunter wars in the 1820s, about the um, Bathurst War in the 1820s, and also about the Radri War in the 1820s and 30s. This is a really important era, and the Central Coast had warriors that stood up also, um, just like other mob, and, and resisted. So basically, by 1827, um, the first magistrate to the region a guy named Willoughby Dean, um, he did a census of, of the mob and he said there were 65 men, women and children around the Central Coast. Obviously, the impact of smallpox uh, was quite incredible. By 1828, we have um, evidence in the white records about crop burning and that being a cause of, um, of frontier violence. However, it's not until 1834 and 1835 that things really um, get quite serious in terms of, of frontier violence. And w- one um, big big factor in terms of the evidence, or one big piece of evidence that we have, is we have a bounty list. So things got that bad up here on the Central Coast that the colonial office in Sydney actually put out a list in newspapers, uh, in the Sydney Gazette and the New South Wales Advertiser, of 18 men, 18 Darkenang warriors, with a bounty of £10 on their head. So this is late 1834, and they've put a bounty out for 18 First Nations men with a list, little comments about them, and £10 reward if you bring them in. It doesn't say if you bring them in, um, you know, dead or alive, However, it does provide that £10 reward. So one thing we need to remember too is you can imagine a little bit of hysteria being worked up among the settler colonist population, thinking, well, we can earn some money by bringing in these First Nations men. So this you know, arguably opens up um, frontier violence because you can have um, settler colonists chasing the bounty as well. But it wasn't just local uh, you know, militia or, or, or bounty hunters. It got to the point where a detachment of 25 soldiers, infantry soldiers, so British infantry, under the command of uh, Lieutenant Owen, 
was sent up here again in late 1834 and in in the start of 1835 to um, basically um, try to put down, um, you know, the activity of the Dakinang warriors who had basically, in terms of resistance, had been robbing settler colonists, had been um, purposely lighting fires, spearing cattle, so resisting in that way. And during this this era, we get a very interesting person um, who was on the bounty list, and his name, his, his anglicised name was Hobby. His First Nations name was Carbon, so just like the just like the carbon, as in carbon dioxide, C A R B O N. Probably a, a, a transliteration error in terms of the name, but that's um, how his indigenous name was recorded as Carbon. So this Carbon warrior is very in, a very interesting man, obviously a very brave man, and his um, anglicised name was Hobby. So we first hear of Hobby. In, uh, in 1834, when um, a lady named Sarah Matthew, who was the wife of a surveyor named Felton Matthew, who um, actually mentions Hobby in her letters, uh, sorry, in her diary. And she says this, she says, um, so she was up here with her husband, the surveyor Felton Matthew, who was surveying the land, and she wrote these really interesting diary entries in 1834. And she said this about Hobby. She said, Hobby um, was the... Um, Sorry, I'll just start again. She said that Hobby was working for the local settler colonists on the Central Coast. And she said that the, quote, the overseer at Wyoming, Wyoming is a suburb near Gosford, for the listeners, sent one of our black friends, Mr. Hobby, with a horse for me. Why am I drawing attention to Hobby? There's so many, there's 18 warriors on this bounty list. Why draw attention to Hobby? It's because with Hobby, we can see the motive for resistance because we've got a bit of information about him from the settler records. And just think about this for a moment, Bo and listeners. Hobby was working for the settler colonists by 1834. He's a young man. He's probably about 16. And he's 16 to 18. He's working for the settler colonists. This is that intimacy of the frontier that we were talking about before. But by December of the same year, Hobby had a 10-pound bounty in his head for his arrest, and he was eventually arrested. So we, from January, he's working for the settler colonists, and by the end of the year, he'd taken on the path of resistance. So what happened? Well, he was apprehended for robbing the property of a guy named Alfred Hill Jacques on the 25th of October, 1834. He was tried on the 5th of August, 1835, and given the death penalty for the crimes of robbery and putting in fear. So again, that question, what happened to him during 1834 that saw him embark on this path of resistance? So during the court case in Sydney, Mr. Jacques, the settler colonist who Hobby and some other uh, warriors, they attacked his property. He said that First Nations men had robbed his homestead and they told him that they came from different mobs and that they had gathered to commit robberies. So they're resisting by robbing the settler colonists and, you know, taking away their, their items that they can survive on. So that's a smart strategy, you know, sort of guerrilla tactics, robbing and depriving clear evidence of organised resistance on the Central Coast frontier. Jacques further stated, this is from court transcripts, Jacques further stated in court that Hobby and his fellow warriors informed him of their overall aims in resisting the presence of the settler colonists when they proclaimed that, quote, black fellow was best fellow and that 
blackfellow master now. Blackfellow rob everybody. Whitefellow eat bandicoot and black snakes now. So this is fascinating evidence. Admittedly, it's coming from a white source and it's coming from the courtroom records. However, according to Mr. Jark's testimony, Hobby and his warriors had decided to turn things on their heads. They were going to restore order to the way it was before invasion. They proclaimed that, no, Blackfellow was Bestfellow. We are on top. And we are going to transform the food chain back into what it should be because the Blackfellow will be master and the white fellow will eat snakes and bandicoots. So, and again, you can see in that statement too, Bo, what, what Hobby is revealing there in that statement is that food resources was, as we know, but it's just interesting in this evidence, food resources was at the crux of this resistance. Mm. You know, they've been pushed, pushed off their land, pushed off all the amazing um, natural resources they could, could use, and that's why. Hobby and other warriors and their families were resorting to um, eating some of the foods they may not have usually eaten year-round, such as um, snakes and bandicoots. And so he's really making a very profound statement about the reason uh, for resistance. Yeah, you can see that um, in in most parts uh, as well. And, and when I chat to other people that, you know, food, uh, water um, are a big factor in conflict. Uh, and then also... You see that um, a lot of the massacres uh, that happen uh, take uh, happen nearby or or on you know like the banks of a river as well, uh, because usually this is what a source of, of uh, you know um, a place where mob would gather for various different activities or even just to sort of to camp and to rest before they you know uh, continue on with their journeys as well. Exactly, and in a moment I'll talk about the evidence of massacre and. And like you were saying, one of the um, we, we do have evidence of a mass poisoning here on the Central Coast. And like you were saying, Bo, it took place near an amazing uh, water source uh, where there are amazing habitation um, shelters and middens. So, you know, a, a really important part of country uh, for food and, and for culture. And that's where we have evidence of a, of a poisoning. So like you were saying, and, and like Lindell's map illustrates, you know, and, and as you were saying before, so many of these massacres occurred on, on really important parts of country uh, where the where the soldiers or the settler colonists or the police, mounted police, uh, found the mob and, and embarked upon those heinous massacres. So in terms of, uh, of Hobby and, and what happened to him, so Hobby's in, in court in, in Sydney, 1835, and he was found guilty and sentenced to death. The death sentence, was com- death sentence was commuted to hard labour on Goat Island in Sydney Harbour. Hobby and other dark and young men on the island were then released into the custodianship of Reverend Threlkeld up in Lake Macquarie. Hobby and his fellow warriors escaped on the first night of their stay. So you've, got, you've got to laugh at that. Good on them. Yeah. They, so that, you know, they're, they're released, taken to the poor old Reverend Threlkeld's mission. And they escape on the first night. And you can't blame them. They want to get back to country and they return to country. They return to the beautiful Central Coast, Arkanan country. And Hobby appears again. He appears again on the returns of the Aboriginal native. Um, so the official records uh, where blankets were handed out and, and, and you know, census were taken. 
and he appears in 1840, and that's the last that we hear of him. But just in that one case study, Bo and listeners, we get this amazing experience of an, of an Aboriginal warrior, a Darkanung warrior, who resisted, who, who made a bold statement about why they were resisting and really trying to upend things and, and return things back to, to what, the way they should be. He was arrested. He was charged. He went through the whole experience. Um, and unfortunately, he does disappear from records then. And he may, he may have been um, the subject of, of you know, um, violence that was not documented. And in terms of violence that, that wasn't documented, there is evidence of massacre or massacres here during this period in the 1830s. Hmm. Just around the time of the bounty, um, the bounty for the eighteen warriors, and around the time of Hobby's incarceration and hmm. release. Just and my, oh, yep. I was saying, just in regards to like um, massacres, just in regards to the massacres around sort of the the eighteen thirties. Um, do you find it? that it was difficult around that time to sort of find these records. And I do know from like chatting with somebody like Lyndall and, and other historians, they mentioned um, that due to sort of what happened with Mile Creek and, and the hearing and, and how, you know, the perpetrators were, were found guilty or some of them anyways, um, did that have an effect on the response uh, to, to Aboriginal, to massacres and, and violence towards Aboriginal people? Um, Definitely, yep. mm, yeah. It's really, it's a really clear case up here because 1838, seven whites are hung, rightly so. More should have been brought to justice, as we all know, but seven whites were hung for Mile Creek, and people went underground, as you were saying, and as as Lindell's massacre map shows, and and as many researchers and First Nations people know, um, white perpetrators went underground with their knowledge of massacres and this is exactly what happened on the central coast so we don't have we do not have just put let's, let's put this all into context a bit of a timeline mid 1830s this apex of violence we don't have a reference to massacre on the central coast until 1875 so 40 to 50 years later we finally get an outsider happened to be a very famous poet henry kendall which i'll talk about in a minute comes to Gosford, hears these stories, and he finally puts it into print. Again, Bo, we're talking about that period after the Mile Creek Massacre, people went underground, people zipped their lips, and it wasn't until 50 years later that some of the settler colonists that knew about it, or even maybe some of the perpetrators, were willing to communicate to Henry Kendall, one of Australia's uh, first well-known poets, about what happened. And I might just uh, go straight into what Henry Kendall reported in an 1875 article titled Arcadia at Our Gates. And he, he, he got this information by talking to local settler colonists in and around the Central Coast in the early 1870s. And, it, and unfortunately, in terms of Lyndall Ryan's massacre map, we don't uh, have this position on the massacre map yet because we just don't have any corroborating evidence. We don't have any evidence to back this up as of yet. But this is what uh, Henry Kendall said in 1875 about massacre on the Central Coast. He said that in this year, we're talking about 
Um, he actually gives the date of 1842, but he, he's obviously got the date wrong because he says sort of 50 years later, it, he should, what he's really talking about is in the 1830s. Um, I might just cut that bow and start again, if that's all right. That's all good, yeah. Yep. So um, let me just cut and start again. Um, I'll just bring it up. Okay. Right, I'll just count in. Three, two, one. So Henry Kendall reports uh, evidence of massacre in, in the mid-1830s, and this is what he says. He says, in this year, the Aborigines, for some reason not handed down, recommenced their hostility, and many of their and many of them committed crimes of such a hate, a serious character that the government had to send down a body of soldiers. So that's that body of infantry that we've talked about before in 1835, late 1834, early 1835. As a result, some of the culprits were taken, and that's reference to the arrests that we talked about before, people like Hobby, and others killed. But from what I can learn, the military displayed great barbarity. And here we go. This is Henry Kendall, a great Australian poet, writing the first documentary evidence of massacre on the Central Coast in 1834-1835. He says this. He says the soldiers in the middle of the night went to camp after camp, surprised the occupants, men, women and children, and shot them down like native dogs. He says the poor friendly blacks fared no better than the others. And Henry Kendall is not proud of this. He says the whole affair was a horrible satire upon our civilization. He's not happy about what he was told. And Henry Kendall also um, wrote a poem about 10 years earlier called Wanuna, the last of his tribe. So he had some sympathies towards First Nations peoples. But it doesn't stop there. In 1879, Henry Kendall again reported about the same a period of massacre in a different journal, this time in the Freeman's Journal. His last article was in the Town and Country Journal in 1875. And then in 1879, he returns to the same topic and says very similar information. He says, the black fellow in these parts, the Central Coast, is a thing of the past. He says, in the old days, he, the Darkenung people, were a notorious nuisance. He says, indeed, 40 or 50 years ago, Bungary and his mob made such headway against the unfortunate settlers that soldiers had to be sent to the rescue. And these gentlemen shot everything before them, that is to say, every black skin, men, women, and children. Now, this is where we get a new detail about the bounties, the bounties we talked about before. Kendall says, about the same time, rewards were offered for the ears of First Nations peoples, for the ears, and that these were gathered in such quantities, he says. Now, we don't have any evidence to back that up. We know ears were taken, uh, in other areas of the continent, but we don't have, have evidence to back up Kendall's statement there. But twice, Henry Kendall, very famous Australian poet, reported that massacre did indeed occur here in the mid-1830s when soldiers were sent up here. Now, as I said before, we don't have documentary evidence to back it up at this point, but researchers are working to try and find if there is anything out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that's sort of the only source of information um, about those periods of time come, you know, uh, later on and and come from, you know, a poet or, or a musician uh, at that mm. as well. Um, mm. 
Yeah, it's, it's and obviously, you know, that's sort of how, uh, once again, sort of like how history sort of, um, well, I guess with that, we can sort of see how, you know, sadly there is sort of this denial of sort of what could have, you know, uh, what people say didn't happen. You know, obviously the experience of the local mob down there will say different. Um, you know, but you know we you know we, we we still do have you know these accounts where you know uh, these individuals today deny that history as well. Um, just That's sort- right, and, and yep. yeah, uh, just one more thing, uh, just just on that. So, my research is actually on the way that settler colonists wrote the histories of the frontier, uh, local histories of the frontier in the twentieth century, and this. This evidence from Henry Kendall about massacre was not included in any local history publication until 1989. So you've got over a hundred years of of European local history writers, settler colonists, writing local histories and deciding not to include this information that Henry Kendall put forth about violence and massacre on the frontier. And part of my research is looking at why they decided not to include it. And there's obviously a variety of factors um, because this is, you know, heinous crime. And Henry Kendall also reported individual acts of violence. He says this. He says the soldiers shot down a blind First Nations man named Pennican and they shot him down like a vulture, says Henry Kendall. And he also says that Tom Desmond, the convict we talked about before who was found living with dark and young people, that Tom Desmond tied a savage that speared him to a tree, that tied a First Nations warrior to a tree, and then cut his hands off. So these are the despicable oral traditions that Henry Kendall's being told by local settler colonists here on the Central Coast in the early 1870s. And the white local history writers over the next 100 years decided not to include it. They didn't want to engage in truth-telling about the frontier. It didn't fit their narrative about British colonisation. One thing that I always say, especially in the podcast, is or one thing that history uh, does is it teaches us about our relationships. There's that saying, I'll oh, get over it. It's in the past. You know, mm-hmm. every, every street we walk on, to every bridge we cross, to, to the park we go to, you know, they're, they're named after these individuals from these areas. Yep. You know, yep. um, we're constantly reminded, one, by our position in this country um, and, and, and how we were put in those. And, and this is why, you know, a lot of mob can't get over it. This is why, well, one, we don't, and, and, and I think we, you know, rightly so, choose not to because of, you know, um, it's still here, it still exists, and it still and, continues. And, and that notion exactly. of superiority is still there. Mm. And then that was a, a big factor here on the Central Coast because the people that wrote the history of here wrote it from a white perspective and they wrote out Aboriginal people. They were actually erased from the, the region's history for a couple of reasons. Firstly, they designated a man in 1875 as the last of the coastal dark and young people. He was a, a fellow who the whites gave the name Billy Faulkner, so an anglicised name, Billy Faulkner. Billy Faulkner died in 1874 and he was proclaimed the last of the coastal dark and young people. And so from that vantage point, 
people weren't told. People weren't told about Aboriginal history um, because settler colonists had designated this man as the last. He had perished. And so in all the local histories, and this is a big part of my research, they all proclaim that there are no Aboriginal people on the Central Coast anymore. They are extinct. And so talking about you know people not knowing, well, A, Aboriginal people were written out of the histories, and B, there was this um, false notion of extinction which further suppressed Aboriginal people on the Central Coast because they were told they don't exist. Uh, so it was this, this, these hideous um, and, and traumatic legacies of the frontier period, like you're saying in other regions and on the Central Coast a bit different, but the same uh, type of terrible legacy. And um, it's a, a massive part of my research is, is looking at the impact that lasting, you know, designating a man or a woman as the last of their people had on on European writing history because they assumed that First Nations peoples in certain areas were extinct because these people had been called the last. It happened, as you and your listeners know, it happened all across the continent. Mm-hmm. There were many king, there were many King Billies, there were many queens. There was a Queen Margaret in Lake Macquarie, just north of here, who was called the last. There was King Billy here, who was called the last. Um, there were so many King Billies across the continent because of King William, the English king. So. Billy and First Nations men were called King Billy. Um, so if they were this notion, if they were sort of, yeah, oh really? I never really understood this, yeah. where that sort of uh, sort of come from. Well, it's, it's yeah. Like, so King Billy comes from King William in the 1830s, and and became a bit of a pa- uh, habit to uh, name, you know, elderly First Nations men as as King Billy, half in mock in mocking him, sometimes in a more serious tone, but but mostly you know, in mocking. Um, and you know, and once the so-called last died, then that fit, that fitted the settler colonist narrative of extinction, and that was a big issue here on the Central Coast. Um, our Dark and Young Land Council didn't emerge until the mid 1980s. Indeed, we had a, an archaeologist come up here, an amazing archaeologist, academic uh, Patricia Vinicone. She came up here and did an amazing survey of First Nations sites all along the Central Coast. An amazing piece of work from. Uh, Patricia Vinicombe, but she said in her text, I could not find any people uh, who claim Aboriginality. That was in 1980. This is how suppressed people were, Um, you know, due to the frontier wars, due to um, dispossession, due to um, the protection policy, the assimilation policy. Just just sort of Mm. in his back end, um, you sent me a video earlier uh, in our conversations, in our chatting, um, when we were talking about getting you to come on the podcast. Um, and uh, could you, for our listeners, uh, tell us a bit about that video and, 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 and I guess what you were, you know, what you were doing with it as well in it. So in 2019, um, the University of Newcastle, Arimba campus, was given a grant by the uh, Central Coast Council and through lecturer Dr Chris Croft to um, undertake a... a um, an educational study um, on first contact on the Central Coast and to take a group of Aboriginal students and of non-Indigenous students, both high school and university, to Pearl Beach, to Patonga and to Saratoga, uh, places of first contact and places of significant contact in the early frontier period. So it was a fantastic partnership between the University of Newcastle, the Darkenar Land Council, because we had Uncle Gavi involved, that's Uncle Gavi Duncan, 
feels involved. And the video we made is on YouTube and it's called Central Coast First Contact Heritage Project. So that's Central Coast First Contact Heritage Project. And you'll get to hear Uncle Gavi talk about the First Nations perspective of First Contact here on the Central Coast with Governor Phillips' man in 1788 and also about disease and also about James Webb, the first official settler colonist. But it was a great journey taking Indigenous students and non-Indigenous students to places of first contact with an elder, with Uncle Gavi there, immersing ourselves in country and really both understanding, trying to understand as much as a white fella can the view of, from the shore, the view from the shore with first contact and with mm. ongoing contact. You know, these filthy uh, British sailors arriving on country, just a, a really scary moment for the mob here. And, and you know, other than the uh, Gadigal Eora mob, the Darkenar mob were very, very, um, you know, early um early experiences and um, had the first early experiences of contact so it's, it's up on youtube please have a look uh, a fantastic project i'm really proud to have been involved in and it's probably a good point at this point to mention the fact that we we went to saratoga and um, in terms of geography for listeners saratoga is not too far from terrigal and not too far from gosford on this on the coastal side of the brisbane water and it was actually at Saratoga that we have evidence of a mass poisoning, again, from that mid-1830s era. So I'm just going to quickly uh, read this account of, of the mass poisoning. Again, it can't be backed up with other evidence at this point. Um, but if you're putting all the evidence together, there was serious frontier violence here on the Central Coast. There were brave Darkenang warriors fighting back and indeed, as we said before, trying to turn things on their heads. And um, it appears we may have evidence that settler colonists resorted to poisoning, which Linda Ryan's research has demonstrated was a phenomenon, unfortunately was a phenomenon across the continent. And, um, and this is what was reported. So William Applegate Gullick, who was a publisher uh, inspector of stamps, photographer, and he actually designed the New South Wales coat of arms. So William Applegate Gullick designed the New South Wales coat of arms, and he was an avid photographer. So he goes to Saratoga around 1900, around that period. So just at the turn of the century, uh, between the uh, 19th and 20th, and he took a photo of a, a settler colonist cemetery, a really early one, um, and the settler colonist uh, cemetery. There is um, called Veterans Hill, Veterans Hill at, at Saratoga. And as a photographer, he, he just took a photo because he was interested. But he got talking to um, some of the local settler colonists and someone reported to him evidence of poisoning. So Gullick was able to converse with Joe Fagan. Now, Joe Fagan lived at Narara uh, near Gosford. And his father, Peter, who was an ex-convict, uh, came up here in 1833, so a very early settler colonist. So this family knew what happened. And indeed, it was this family that actually housed Henry Kendall when Henry Kendall came up here and lived here for two years. 
So putting all this together, Henry Kendall reports violence. He knows the Fagans. Gullick reports violence and poisoning. He knows the Fagans. So this Fagan family, F-A-G-A-N, very important in terms of transmitting the settler colonist uh, knowledge, oral, oral history of violence up here on the Central Coast. And he said this, uh, Joe Fagan said this, on the hill behind the cemetery, this is um, this is Veteran Paul Cemetery, Saratoga. On the hill behind the cemetery, shown in this picture, was fought a bloody battle with the blacks for over a week. They were eventually poisoned, and a large number are buried where they fell on the hill. So we've got this really interesting fragmentary evidence from a family that was here since 1833 about violence and a poisoning. Whilst, again, we don't have um, evidence to back that up, I think, and listeners would probably agree, that the evidence that we have from the settler colonist record um, you know, is, is almost overwhelming that there was uh, serious frontier violence up here on the Central Coast. And then I guess on that note as well, we'll wrap our yarn up. Um, I do want to say thanks uh, uh, to Ryan for coming on and having this conversation, uh, yarning about, you know, the true history of uh, dark and young uh, country. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, he's a PhD candidate in history, working alongside and, and one of his supervisors, Lyndall Ryan. If you don't know who Lyndall Ryan is, you know, go Google some of uh, her amazing work and the work that, you know, University of Newcastle are doing in regards to frontier conflict and the masculine map. Uh, he's a historian teacher as well. And this has been episode uh, 27 of Frontier War Stories. And just really quickly as well, uh, don't forget, you know, uh, or if you're new to the podcast, uh, you can uh, uh, become a patron uh, 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 by donating money through, uh, sorry, I'll do it again. And don't forget also, um, uh, you can donate to the podcast by becoming a patron subscriber or via PayPal. Um, definitely get on to Instagram. Uh, I have a Instagram page called Frontier War Stories. Uh, there it has a bit more detail in terms of uh, some of the links you can click uh, to, to donating to the PayPal or um, how you uh, become a patron subscriber and just really quickly if you want to you just google frontier war stories uh and head to uh podbean uh that's usually the first sort of google search result uh and then uh to your top right hand corner it has become a patron and you could follow the podcast uh as well and support it uh you know uh, through the support that everybody uh does that's how i continue this podcast so you know please continue that but as always, you know, it is great to have these conversations uh, as well um, and definitely um, continue these conversations uh, in your home, uh, at your school, at your workplace, at the pub, wherever, because these are the stories that uh, we need to talk about more often.